0: So there's the story about uh, after the Buddha the Buddha's passing that uh there was a council about what would happen to the dhamma now that the master had passed and it was uh decided that those who came should be enlightened. And so everyone was invited except Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin, and he had been his attendant and had an amazing memory and so remembered all of the Buddha's discourses. So what a dilemma, right? He wasn't enlightened yet. So they said, Ananda, get it together. And he said, All right, I'm gonna really try, right? So he worked and he sat and he walked 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 and he sat and he walked. Nothing. Nothing. Unlike us, right? And he finally said it, and finally, it was the night before the council. And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not working. It's not happening. So I think I will just go to bed because I need sleep to give them the bad news in the morning. And the story goes that as Ananda went down towards the bed, before he, his head hit the bed, he was enlightened. So I wish that for you tonight. (laughs) (laughs) What's required is that constant mindfulness. And so even though he had given up on enlightenment, he was still practicing. And I think the wonderful part of that story is that as we relax and we let go of expectations, and let go of uh, any idea of the way things ought to be or what will happen as a result of our practice, it comes. So I offer that to you um, for your consideration and reflection. So. Tonight, I wanted to talk about um, how we go back into life uh, with this practice. And we've been, we've been discussing all week uh, freedom, that this practice leads to freedom. And Michelle started Uh, by teaching us about mindfulness and how the practice of mindfulness directly leads to freedom. And Larry talked about uh, cultural trauma and the hindrances to practice and how practicing with those very hindrances and practicing with those traumas that we suffer can also lead to freedom. And Anoushka talked about a quality of mind, metta, loving kindness, that is a manifestation of the freedom that comes with our practice and one that can be cultivated. And Bhante last night talked about um, compassion, the suffering that we see in the world and how we can meet it with compassion and understand deeply the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha taught about suffering and the origin of suffering and the cessation of suffering, which is the very freedom we seek and the path to that cessation. And tonight, I'd like to just reflect with you about a factor of, the mind, a factor of mind, or a quality of mind, that is also one of the brahma viharas, uh, which is equanimity, upeka. I like the translation of brahma vihara as best home. We talked, we ta- we talked about them as um, the divine abodes, the place where. Uh, We can be heavenly. And there's a story that uh, some Brahmins came to the Buddha and asked him and tried to trick him into talking about uh, heaven because they knew that he was not um, uh, willing, really, to talk about divinities or the origin of the world. And when they asked him about uh, heaven and how to get to heaven, he taught them the Brahma-Viharas. And he taught them as the best home that we can occupy, the best place that our minds can be. So Metta and Karuna have been, we've practiced all week, and um, Bhante talked about it. I'm sorry, Anushka talked about it, and Karuna Bante talked about compassion, and we've not talked about mudita, joy, in this retreat. But I'm sure you've experienced it. Yes? Hmm. Not a lot of yeses. Not a lot of nods, right? <laughs> but there, I'm sure there have been moments of joy, and uh, there's a qual- there's a quality that can be cultivated of. Um, happiness for the happiness of another. It's a pretty difficult practice, but it's a practice that certainly can be done. And equanimity, upekka, is the last of these uh, Brahma-viharas. But interestingly enough, it's also um, the seventh of the seven factors of awakening and the tenth of the ten perfections of a Buddha. And so, just to hold uh, while we talk about it, uh, the interesting notion that this quality of equanimity, this quality that we can, uh, that that results from our practice, really is a quality is the quality that uh, appears to be the culmination of um, the factors of awakening, the practices of perfection of. of the Buddha mind and of these Brahma viharas. Upeka, the word upeka, is um, derived etymologically from uh, two roots, upa and iksha. Iksha is uh, to look, and uh, upa is closely. So it's a way of looking closely at experience, and it's you'll often hear equanimity described as balance of mind, or a stillness, or radiance of mind that is able to uh, meet the experience of this world, the experiences of this world, with balance, with poise, with equipoise. I like the um, the the etymological um, derivation of the word, because it it in a way points to how the heart uh, can receive experience by looking closely at it, regardless of what that experience is. In your practice this week, you've I think you've probably seen, and certainly as many of you have reported in the interviews, you've seen joy and sorrow. You've seen pleasure and pain. You've seen uh, depression and elation. You've seen uh, happiness and sadness. You've seen, in a way, uh, a, a full range of what life offers. And as we have sat and walked and listened to the Dhamma, we've perhaps been learning a little bit about how uh, we may possibly um, transform the way in which we relate to these ever-changing circumstances of life. We are swimming in a sea that is constantly uh, moving, that is never presenting the same thing, that is constantly moving us from, uh, according to these winds, we call them the eight worldly winds, uh, the eight worldly dharmas, pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame, uh, fame and disrepute. Have you noticed how these run as a thread through your life? that when we get praised, pretty soon there's blame. (laughs) I've gotten two notes, one that asked about bowing and said, uh, do you think that it's really appropriate for all of the teachers to be bowing to these statues? And the very same day, I got another note that said, I am so moved by the bowing of the teachers. So these eight worldly winds are constantly blowing through our lives, and the question is, how do we work with them in such a way that this peace that we so deeply yearn for arrives in our lives? We may have noticed that the way that we are habituated or that we're conditioned to working with these eight worldly winds, uh, there's not so much peace that comes. So I wanted to read to you um, from uh, a, le- a letter uh, written to me by a friend, who a very dear friend, who is dying. She was uh, diagnosed with um, ovarian cancer and has been battling it for a while. And in the last uh, month or so, she decided that she would no longer be treated. And so she fully anticipates that she will be dying in the next uh, few months. She says, In my years of practice, I have spent many hours sitting with aversion to unpleasant body sensations. As I sit with my distended belly, what I see is that every itch I didn't scratch, every tickle in my throat I didn't cough, and every throb on my forehead from a migraine that I didn't, ser- that I didn't rub has served me well. I have developed, cultivated, a muscle for bearing witness. Being a mirror to unpleasant body sensations. The more I have continued in this way, the more peaceful I have become. There is no separation. The unpleasant body sensations and peacefulness are seamless. Spontaneously, I find myself chanting the refuges And she quotes a poem from T.S. Eliot. It says, music is heard so deeply that it is not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. So I think that's a pretty powerful testimonial to what you have been doing here this week, to the effect of uh, the kind of practice that you have undertaken here, that you have been able, perhaps from time to time, to not scratch every itch, to not cough every tickle of the throat, and to not rub every pain that has arisen. And it's quite comforting, I think, to know that there is a connection between uh, doing that, such a practice and that uh, there is a direct connection to how we meet life. There is a direct connection to uh, how we experience these eight worldly winds, and that the, uh, the muscle that we develop, the, the, the five-pound weight that we're lifting as we sit here and refuse to scratch an itch, because we become interested in it instead, or because we know that the cultivation of stillness and of quiet and of silence eventually will yield clarity. That's a five-pound weight when we refuse to scratch the itch that prepares the muscle for the 3,000-pound weight that comes when there is incredible discomfort, uh, which inevitably comes to each of us. So I'd like to talk about the spiritual journey that we are on to this development of equanimity. Carl Jung said that the central shift in our time is to see the spiritual journey as one uh, towards wholeness not one towards perfection, and I'm glad of that because I've noticed for myself that perfection always seems like just one step away. Have you noticed that? That every time you set a goal and you reach it, it doesn't seem to quite make it. I saw um, a New Yorker cartoon the other day where uh, two, a, a man and a woman, were looking at each other and the man is saying to the woman, I don't know if being happy is what's going to make me happy. (laughs) (laughs) You laugh, yeah. (laughs) So... um, So we've been practicing. And we have been learning a bit about how to, uh, the importance of not beating up on ourselves, (laughs) and of practicing habits of kindness and compassion. And even though we've been doing that, it can still be quite difficult to remain present in the face of pain and of unpleasant experience. And this is true whether uh, the pain and the unpleasant experience arises in our meditation practice or in our everyday life. It can be really helpful to remember in these situations that we carry in our deepest nature as human beings the quality of equanimity. That if we didn't have this quality of equanimity, it would not be capable of being cultivated. And this um, looking closely is this translation of equanimity or of balance as looking closely means that what we are developing as we sit here in, uh, sometimes in great pain sometimes in small pain sometimes in just impatience or uh, one yogi told me today that she just wanted to scream right? do, you, do you recognize that? So, we, we, can be all on, we can all be on some on the scale, on different places on the scale, but nevertheless, it's still, it can still be painful. And to remain present in these situations, uh, we can find that even-mindedness, that looking closely without flinching, without turning away, without uh, indifference. This quality of equanimity suggests a heart and a mind that is not disturbed even under great strain. And it is possible to learn it, to cultivate it, as we keep our hearts open through the changing circumstances of our lives. And there's a kind of courage and a willingness to stay present that is required. And it's not willpower. It's not gritting our teeth as if it's a grim duty to not scratch the itch. but rather it's the act of bringing careful and open-hearted attention to being here. And this looking closely means we don't turn away. And it means that we soften into our awareness of the present moment, accepting things just as they are, just as they are, even if this means that we must open to painful or unpleasant uh, experience and see it exactly as it is. One teacher of mine, Ajahn Sumedho, instructs that we, ex- we um, receive experience just by knowing this is how it is. So we know that happiness is like this, joy is like this. Sorrow is like this. Depression is like this. Elation is like this. Discomfort is like this. (coughs) Whatever is happening, it's possible for us to just have that open-hearted attention that knows the way things are in this moment, even when it's unpleasant. Then, when we sit with difficult experiences, we discover that what is already in us is the ability to be composed and to be unshakable. Sometimes this quality of equanimity is described as a mountain that can sit in the midst of all of the weather systems that come, snow and sun and rain and clouds and wind whatever comes, or a still mountain lake. And as we have these difficult experiences more and more, and as we are willing to practice more and more and see them for what they are, we discover that the depth of our equanimity can be more and more And the realization and manifestation in our own life of this innate quality of equanimity is based on our awareness of the impermanence of all things. So that thought that you had today, where is it now? The itch that you had this morning at the 8.45 sitting Where is it now? The wanting to scream. I hope it's gone. (laughs) Where is it now? And to understand that when we talk about equanimity, that indifference or apathy is certainly not what is meant but this, deeply, this deep willingness to stay present and open is, to what is here is what we are discussing. Now, I understand fully that for a community of color, this teaching of acceptance of difficulty may be somewhat tricky that it is difficult to tell an oppressed people, just accept things as they are. Don't worry. They'll be just fine, right? How, how many centuries have we been hearing that? So I want to talk a little bit about um, the way in which we can cultivate this spirit of acceptance and this factor of enlightenment, this uh, quality of equanimity, and yet still know that we can act in the world. So let's look a little bit at the state of our world. Are you ready? You're going home tomorrow. So we it's no surprise. It's not news to you that we are in not such great shape these days in the world. We have many problems that are now not just national, but global, because we have a, an, an even more interconnected, if it's possible, world. We have explosive regional, ethnic, and religious tensions and prejudices, racism, the continuing spread of nuclear weapons, disregard for human rights, which alarmingly now includes our very own country. A widening gap between rich and poor, international trafficking in drugs, women, and children. We who used to be the human rights envy of the world now find ourselves at a place where the rate of imprisonment in the United States has been rising exponentially. In the last two decades alone, the rate of incarceration for women has gone up by four hundred percent. Our prison population is over two million and as you know prison building has become very big business. And as we all know there are complex ways in which gender, race, and class help to define our notions of criminality and contribute to criminal justice systems across the globe in which prison and punishment seem to be a natural, even inevitable end for certain classes of people. And I volunteer at a prison, uh, a maximum security prison for women in New York, so I can tell you that prisoner abuse is not confined to Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. There's child abuse and kidnappings. There's violence against women. Depletion of the Earth's natural resources. The despoliation of the environment. And I just learned the other day that the five largest exporters, it's not surprising, but the, lar- large, the, largest, the five largest exporters of weapons of mass destruction are the United States, China, France, England and Russia, and they are the five countries who are the permanent members of the Security Council of the United Nations. So violent films are also a major export. And as we speak, we know there's war in Afghanistan and Iraq, tribal and civil wars in several African countries, Palestine, Israel, Tibet continues to be occupied by China and even some of the countries of the United Nations and NATO are at war with each other. There have been more than 150 wars since World War II, and there are less than 200 countries in the world. Hmm. So we live in this world, and it's difficult when we say, just accept it, right? It's hard uh, and I get the question often about the connection between um, the, what people perceive as the passivity of Buddhism and the, um, the need for urgent action in the world. So it's, it's important that when we talk about uh, equanimity, that we understand that we are not talking about a passive acceptance, but actually what we're talking about is a quality of mind from which out the actions that we take, we are assured will be effective. That when we take action, we know that the heart that is at rest will produce an action that will not produce more of these uh, horrors in the world, but will in some, in some way, whether small or large, possibly help to alleviate the suffering caused by the greed, hatred, and delusion in all of our hearts that produce this kind of world. And that um, quality of balance and stillness in the midst of difficulty is based uh, deeply and profoundly on the wisdom that knows change. When we understand that change is fundamental, then when we open to it, there is no need to hold on to or push away what our experience is. Rather than control what can never be controlled, we find a sense of security, not in some idea about the way things ought to be, or the, th- the way we think they should be, but in what is actually happening. We allow for the mystery and not judging what is happening, but rather cultivating a balance of mind that can receive what is happening. This is from Trungpa Rinpoche, who is a Tibetan, was a Tibetan uh, lama, who was quite um, instrumental in bringing Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, to America in the 20th century. He says, There are times to cultivate and create when you nurture your world and give birth to new ideas and ventures. There are times of flourishing and abundance when life feels in full bloom, energized and expanding. And there are times of fruition when things come to an end. They have reached their climax, and must be harvested before they begin to fade. And of course, there are times that are cold and cutting and empty, times when the spring of new beginnings seems like a distant dream. Those rhythms in life are natural events. They weave into one another as day follows night, bringing not messages of hope and fear, but messages of how things are. So this quality of equanimity recognizes change and in recognizing change can rest in the midst of it. It recognizes that where we are right now is a result of complex causes and conditions from time immemorial. That all beings are heirs to their karma, and that our wishes are for them, even though we may connect deeply in loving kindness, and in compassion, and in sympathetic joy to their joys and sorrows, that our wishes for them are not what will um, determine what happens, but their own choices and actions. And this wisdom may not feel so warm and fuzzy, but actually is like, a free fall that we can take a way of really falling into the universe understanding deeply and profoundly the way that it works and when we understand how that how it works a radiant calm can come to us a radiant calm that means balance and the acknowledging that most of life is beyond our control what is within our control is our ability to see our intentions, to know our intentions. And when we understand deeply that what comes to us is a result of the motivations that we form in our actions, then our lives begin to align with that truth, with that wisdom. And there is no need for fear we let go of our attachment to things being a certain way. And even as we let go of that attachment, paradoxically, we we are free to strive for the best for ourselves and for others. And that, uh, that quality of equanimity allows that freedom for us to do what is what is called for. So in the face of a world that is painful in many ways, not in all ways, but painful in many ways, we're not called so much to fix it, to... Um, make it the way we think it ought to be, but actually to respond in this very moment to what is presented. Bhante last night was talking about the difference between reactivity and responsiveness. And this quality of equanimity is what really teaches us that difference. Reactivity is that uh, that clinging to a certain idea about the way things are, the way things should be, and being completely uh, um, unsatisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are, so that we are um, constantly trying to make the world fit into some idea of the way we think it ought to be, and in that way we 're actually wreaking more violence and bringing our hearts of suffering and discontent to whatever situation is presented. How are we to uh, change the world externally? How are we to hold the tides back in the world if we are not uh, looking internally to see what is actually moving in our own hearts? Can we actually recognize that whatever is being painted on the world, uh, on the screen of the world, is actually what is happening in, in, the, in the very um, center of our own heart? Martin Luther King talked about the power that is necessary to implement the demands of love and justice. He said that power is the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, or economic changes. In this sense, power is not only desirable, but necessary in order to implement the demands of love and justice. One of the greatest problems of history is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is identified with a resignation of power, and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. So, in our uh, in our recognition. Of our um, wish to see justice in the world, can we remember that we are not separate beings, that we are not separate monads floating around where there is us and them? Can we remember that we are all part of the whole? As Albert Einstein said, a human being is part of the whole called-by-us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as somewhat separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. So, in working for justice, in seeing what is needed, we understand deeply our connection, not only as uh, human beings, but as beings that are acting, and with with creating karma, creating causes and conditions in every moment that come to fruition as we uh, move through life. So this is what we are doing here. We are preparing the heart to have balance and to be centered so that when we act in the world, we are acting not from a habitual place of reactivity, not from a place of hatred or anger, but from a place of love and wisdom, a place where we understand deeply the um, suffering and the causes of suffering, suffering and its end, suffering and the path to its end, where we understand deeply that how we are may be even more important than what we do. This is from the Dhammapada, which are sayings of the Buddha. Look how he abused and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me, Live with such thoughts, and you live in hate. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel?" So we work knowing that we have um, received our share of the pain of the world. And equanimity calls us to meet the pain of the world our share of the pain of the world, in joy. Even though it's difficult, we can meet it in joy because we understand profoundly the nature of things as they are. And as we sit and we walk, what we are seeing what we are understanding deeply is not Gina or Jane or um, John. But we're actually knowing all of us. We're knowing the nature of who we are as human beings, as sentient beings. So when I see hate in my own heart, I don't need to blame or shame, but I can understand deeply, ah, this is the nature of hatred, and this is my share of it. What will I do with it? Will I make it grow, or will I abandon it? And when I see love in my heart, there's no need for pride. I can actually know, ah, this is love, this is my share of it. What will I do with it? Will I make it grow, or will I abandon it? What will I do? What will I bring to the world? What will my being contribute to this world? And so as as we learn equanimity here at this retreat, And we are profoundly learning equanimity. You may not know that you are learning equanimity, but you are learning equanimity. As you learn it here, you will not lose it. It's not a quality of heart that will desert you, but one that if you protect it and you cultivate it, it will grow and become stronger in you. and you will be able to use it in life. Please have that faith. Please see that the practice that you've done here uh, can verify your faith, can uh, brighten your faith, so that you know, oh, I have touched this heart of kindness. I have touched the heart of compassion. I have touched the... Place of equanimity in my heart and mind, and so now I know it. The only way that it will leave you is by burying itself. It won't ever completely leave you. You may not know that it's there, but it's there. So there's no need to fear that what you have seen here, that what you've learned here, will desert you. It is now irrevocably, and irretrievably, yours. And as you go into the world, into your daily lives, that's what you can bring. Evenness, balance, kindness, compassion, wisdom, and the truth of the way things are. That is the translation of Dhamma. This is the way things are. They come, they go. Ten thousand joys, ten thousand sorrows, and we have our share. And we can bear it. Because we are developing and cultivating this quality of equanimity. i close with a quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We often speak of the external enemy. For example, in my own case, our Chinese brothers and sisters are destroying Tibetan rights, and in that way more suffering and anxiety develops. But no matter how forceful this is, it cannot destroy the supreme source of my happiness which is my calmness of mind. This is something an external enemy cannot destroy. Our country can be invaded. Our possessions can be destroyed. Our friends can be killed. But these are secondary for our mental happiness. The ultimate source of my mental happiness is my peace of mind. Nothing can destroy this except my own anger. I'm actually going to close with another uh, reading for you from a friend. This is another letter written by another friend who went to um, Ground Zero on September 12th, 2001. To um, work as a chaplain. He said, As I entered ground zero, I experienced a feeling of awe, like entering a great cathedral or the Grand Canyon. The remaining buildings surrounding the area where the Twin Towers had stood formed an enormous amphitheater, a sacred circle, and burial ground. It was both infinite and intimate. I felt my heart break wide open. As I watched in stillness, after we climbed and stood at the top of the hill without moving for nearly thirty minutes. As I watched in stillness, the words that came to me were, oh, this is how it is. This is who I am. This is the way the world is. This is the way of life and and death. This is the nature of things. Everything that is created comes and goes, comes together and falls apart. Everything. All of history seemed to be there. Visions of ancient civilizations rising and falling flashed through my mind, and I had an intense awareness of both the preciousness of human birth and the fleeting nature of life. I felt grief for those who had died and for the families who would live on without them. But I also felt a deep sense of hurt for the continuing ignorance and insanity of the human race. Ashes to Ashes dust to dust but nothing was missing my mind just stopped or seemed to drop away and in this seeing it was as if everything was present as vast open space it was as if love and hate life and death the inner and outer all experience moved as an infinite space of consciousness There was only seamless, empty, silent, vast, loving light. On top of the hill of rubble in Ground Zero, amidst all the sadness and loss, it was as if a veil had parted and revealed a luminous, loving presence that had been hidden but was always there. Like Jesus saying, split a piece of wood and I am there. Later on that day, we went to volunteer our services at the makeshift center established for families searching for missing loved ones. There we met face-to-face with these families who showed us photos and expressed a mixture of shock, hope, and grief. I returned later, joining with other volunteers from around the country in the recovery effort. The first weekend, as I was taking a run in Central Park, I saw a friend running in the other direction. I waved and as he passed, I began to cry. I felt so alive with the wind blowing at my skin and the trees around me appreciating every moment. I ran and I cried in the vast open heart of my city. Nothing was changed. All was revealed otherwise. Not that horror was not. Not that the killings did not continue. Not that I thought there was to be no more despair. But that, as if transparent, all disclosed an otherness that was blessed. And that was bliss. I saw paradise in the dust of the street. I think that's a beautiful... Um, example of equanimity in the most difficult circumstances that we can imagine. And that is how it is. With this quality of equanimity, we can bear what is unbearable. So let's sit for a moment. Yes, I'd rather we sit. You can ask me later, okay? So, as you sit, ask what is your heart's deepest intention. as we prepare to leave the retreat, which, of course, is not yet over, so don't fall too far into the future, but just what is your heart's intention right now? What will you do, as Mary Oliver says, with this one wild and precious life that you've been given? What is your intention? This talk was given by Gina Sharp at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 18, 2007. It is an offering of the Dark.